We're sat in Hackney, or Acne, and I'm sat with Dave Buono Guidi, or as it says up there on the wall, real acne Dave. The H has fallen off. I guessed it, I guessed it. But I love it. I love the fact it that it's phonetically about yeah, no, right it anyway. Yeah, it had to be the H. It's, yeah. it's yeah. so true. Dave, people will know you as an artist. Yeah. But do you want to just give me a one minute potted summary of who you are, why you matter, and why should anybody care? Ooh. Well, I'll tell you who you are. I don't know the other two. I have no idea how I'd even start doing that. But my name is Dave Bonaguidi. I am currently an artist, born in London. My dad's Italian, my mum's Danish. I've always lived in London. I had a career in advertising for a long time, working in big places, small places, set up a few places. After about 35 years, just couldn't do it anymore and um, was fortunate enough to find a second career in something that I sort of would look back now and think is probably the thing I should have been doing for years. But now I'm doing it, which is great. But there's something about Kairos time, which is a Greek definition of time, which is about the right time to do the thing. Yeah. And it would have been the wrong time, although, you know, well, you needed to do the advertising. And oddly enough, somebody spoke to me the other day and said, don't you regret having not done it earlier? And I don't regret anything I've ever done. And to be honest, if I ever had to do it again, I would do it in exactly the same way. Because having 35 years experience in a top end business like marketing and fine tuning how you deal with clients, big spending clients, how you help them become more and more successful has been pretty useful to me as an artist. Because I'm actually I'm now on my own client, you know, I, tell myself what to do and I always say yes. Do you often disagree with yourself? Never, never. <laughs> it's really good. You know, when I worked in advertising, I'd, do, I'd have to do a hundred ideas to make one. Whereas now I can do whatever I want. It's, it's just the first, idea, the first idea that comes to me. I'm like, yeah, that's good, Dave. Well done, mate. Hey, <laughs> rise. Yeah, take the rest of the afternoon off. Yeah, it's good. So I always start these conversations the same way. I ask you three questions about your childhood. What did your childhood taste like? Yeah. What did it smell like? And what did it sound like? Right. Taste like, well, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in an Italian restaurant. So my old man, when he was younger, had a restaurant in Fulham. I mean, Chelsea and Fulham in the 60s and 70s was just an amazing place to grow up. So I used to work behind a bar. So my particular taste is olives, green olives. And my job when I was working at the restaurant as an underage illegal, because you always have to work for when your parents are immigrants, you have to work for them illegally, was to just top up the tray of olives. There were like little bowls of olives and peanuts by the bar. And that was the only thing I could legally do. And light women's cigarettes was the other thing. So I remember the smells of a restaurant. Why just women's cigarettes? Because blokes would always light their own. Blokes would always have a lighter in their pocket. Yeah. Whereas women the women have would, would have it in their bag. And so what they would do is they'd get their cigarettes out and then they would hunt in their bag. And my dad had told me that's what they'll do. So when they're at the bar, they'll get a fag out and they'll look for the lighter to light it. And we have a little lighter under the thing. So you just lean over and go. Nice. And I'd practice, you know, top it up with was lighter it, fuel. Was and there a flirtatiousness to the Not striking at all. Of I was about flint. 13 or 14. Oh, so there was, no, there was no sexual, in, there was no, nothing sexual about it at all. But it was a power trip. That's brilliant. Being, being seen to be useful. But that's an immigrant thing yeah. that my old man used to tell me as well, which is work hard and look useful. Because at some stage, somebody might ask you to leave. Yeah, that makes perfect so sense. So it worked. It was pretty good. So that was your... That was my taste. Yeah. Smell, I would say, freshly cut grass. I don't know what it is. The most memorable moment of my youth was the amazing summer of 76 and 77. It was just yeah. insane. And there was something about that year that it was just raw with... I don't know. It was also like I was... What would I have been? 13? No, hold on. Yeah, 13, 14. Yeah. So probably hitting puberty where your sense and senses become more... You get spider senses. And don't I you? just, I don't know, it was just... Um, but that freshly cut grass, and I can visualise it now, seeing people outside cutting the grass in the back gardens and hearing that sound of lawnmowers. But yeah. that, there's a really weird smell of grass. I don't know what it is, grass. I was... How old was I then? I was 76. I was eight, nearly nine. And it was such a hot summer. And such a long summer. We had eight months summer holidays stop, yeah. back then. It, yeah. was, it was incredible. Yeah. I think what I've done with that summer is I've wrapped up all my childhood summer memories and I've popped them into that summer. And they, they may have been 74, 75 or 77. Yeah. Queen Silver Jubilee. I, yeah, I, yeah, won yeah. The, I won the Egg and Spoon race, the obstacle race. Yeah, yeah. And taken all of those and I've pushed them all into 1976. Yeah. Even though they weren't there. It was just the most amazing I just got a skateboard and I spent the whole summer in the street with a pile of bricks and a bit of bamboo trying to do that thing that I'd watched in a skateboard movie where you 
you know, you go up towards it on your board, jump over the beam, and then land on your board. And land on the board that's gone underneath. And yeah. just drinking tab clear. Tab clear. Tab Fuck clear. Hell. Wearing my Converse coach. And I remember that when the tarmac melted, it got so hot. Yeah. I remember when the tarmac used to melt, and I'm putting your shoes in and then seeing the... The little square print on yeah. the bottom. Totally mesmerising. It was a great year. It was a great year. I wasn't wearing Converse. I can't remember what I was wearing. Yeah. A Botra or something. I, right. I had some kind of dodgy leather shoe from right. Davis's Sports in Coventry. That <laughs> They were good for kicking a ball hard. Yeah. But they weren't actually cool. You were yeah. like laughed at a little bit. Yeah. For them. So that's your taste and your smell. smell. What's the last one? Sound. What did it sound like? Sound. Again, music was a really potent thing for me. I've got a very diverse musical taste i'll listen to anything that i kind of like but i remember again it was 76 77 i remember walking into the front room my dad was sitting on a chair smoking a cigarette watching the today show with bill grundy and the sex pistols were on i know what you're going to say and when it all kicked off and i remember i was just hopping around laughing my head off as my dad was oh the fuck these bloody pigs this fucking idiots the can't be shitty music and he was going mad in his own italian way and I just remember, you know, obviously it was just such a, it felt like it was a call to rebellion. And I just found it fascinating. I didn't really like punk music, didn't really know what it was. But I think the thing that was really interesting was when that thing happened, it just blew music up because there were some very distinct musical traits and what happened when the Pistols came along. And punk as a movement, it just blew everything up because suddenly anybody that had any semblance of <laughs> creativity and music could just go off and try something and it was just a really i thought it was something really interesting whether you like the music or not I thought it's it was irrelevant very powerful about the way that you walked into our price you know i remember a year yeah. after that and you would see five corridors of music rather than two and i just found that really fascinating and you're right you know i use punk as a great example the first punk band in the uk was the damned yeah and the first punk band in the world who do you reckon that was well, it depends. You see, the Americans would probably well, say New first. York Dolls or something. Well, yes, to my mind, yes. I think there was a 60s band called, the, is it The Meteors? Oh, yeah. Who claimed to be the first punk band. But the way that they look, the, I mean, I love the New York Dolls. I look yeah. at the New York Dolls now and think, can we have you back? Yeah. Because there's a little bit of Zig Zig Sputnik in yeah, there, yeah, which I'm a yeah. massive fan of. Oh, yeah. A little bit of punk and a little bit of kind of like avant-garde. I don't know, it's kind of like post-beatnik. There's something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I watched some the other night, actually. But also, it's because there was all sort of stuff like, you know, rockabilly and there were all those old sort of oh. rock and roll bands that suddenly twisted it yeah. a little bit. And but suddenly, music, it just blew up all the genres completely. I'm with you. Um, and I was living in Coventry. Yeah. No, I'd just moved from Coventry. So Scar was kicking off two-tone. Yeah. But you, you absolutely nailed it. It was that democratisation, not just of music. All you needed was a guitar and a garage. You didn't even need to sing or play. Yeah. And you could do something. It was the democratisation of the art that came with it. So, Well, I think that whole thing of what happened at that particular moment in time, if you remember, so 77, 76, I remember driving up to Leicester Square when I was a kid with my dad to dump our rubbish in Leicester Square. Really? So there were rubbish strikes were on. So you couldn't leave your yeah. shit out on the street. So you'd, the thing was, you'd drive up to Leicester Square and you'd throw it over your shoulder into the square. And Leicester Square was just a mountain of rubbish bags, rats everywhere. you then get home and there'd be a fucking power strike. So you'd have candles. Yeah, three-day um, week on electricity, wasn't three it? Three-day yeah. week. The government was in complete chaos. Yeah. There were loads of kids just walking around going, what the fuck is going on? Does this you sound know, like today, apart from the rubbish? Oh, yeah, but the kids don't moan about anything. They, well, they sit there and moan about it, but all on social media. Yeah, and then, but there was just something about that collision of anger and frustration and chaos and mess and just dysfunctionality. And then suddenly, you know, music, art and fashion all collided. Yeah. So you had punk and, you know, Jamie Reid doing all the, the album covers for the Pistols. Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren, yeah. all of that stuff just colliding. And it was just like, Christ. Yeah, and you also was... had like, even older hands like Peter Blake was on fire yeah, at that yeah. point. And I suppose it all came out of pop art. It and, did. You know, got, you know, Warhol and all of those guys. I just watched a three-part documentary on Warhol oh, really? on the BBC. Yeah, Ooh, right. it is really, I mean, much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And made me fall in love. I mean, I always loved Warhol, but I went back and realised how significant he was. Well, and again, it's like to be the pin of all of that stuff that spun out. Yeah. You know, all of those musicians, all of those filmmakers, all of those artists, graffiti, all of that got influenced by what he was doing. And, in, factory, in, and yeah. likewise, what was happening in, in London, in the UK with the Pistols. Do you think we need those moments of extreme chaos and near societal collapse 
in order to shift things forward? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've got to say, I love that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's just that genetically I was born into that because both my parents came to London out of the back end of the Second World War yeah. and the chaos of Italy and Denmark. We didn't even find my mum's family until 75, 76. Wow. She was in an orphanage when she was young because she was from uh, Copenhagen. Germans moved in. All the kids got put out into the countryside. She was from a family of nine and she was the one who went on her own. And so she ended up in London in late 50s, early 60s. Met my dad who'd done the same journey. And, um, you know, Europe was completely chaotic, broken, was destroyed. But also accepting, right? So just yeah. think about what you've said. Your parents, yeah. one Italian, one Danish. Yeah. Orphans, not real orphans. Pretty but, much. But so. displaced, Pretty much. Displaced. Yeah. yeah. Being accepted. Incredibly young. You know, they were like 19, 20 when they did kids, it. Imagine, imagine that. Accepted into a city that was growing and broken at the same time. Yeah. I don't think that would happen now. I don't think it would, but it's also that thing of um, the thing I've always loved. All the businesses that I've ever set up have come in moments of massive turmoil. So yeah. all the agencies I've set up have always been in recessions. Yeah. And I love that. Kind of, I love the chaos. That's amazing. Because there's something really exciting about it. And also, if you've got a bit of a work ethic and you don't have to sit around crying and eating biscuits all day, you'll find something to do. You know? <laughs> and um, you know, even with doing this art thing, I started this in 2020, you know. Got the bloody virus after two months. I love the fact you call it this art thing. Well, yeah, I t I t you know what? It's, I just try not to think about it because in 2019, I had a bit of, not much of a plan, but I had a bit of a plan. And then 2020, thinking, great, you know. I just look, matching numbers, that's never, ever going to happen again in my lifetime. 2020 vision, seeing clearly. I post-rationalised everything. And then March, I thought I was going to fucking die because I had the virus. And then since then... My whole plan has gone from maybe having a three-year look at stuff to if I get to the end of the week and I've got an apple in the fridge, You're happy, happy days, happy days. That rebirth, that kind of coming, it's, it's very Greek tragedy, isn't it? It's very King Lear, breaking down to nothing and coming back. Yeah. That's a really powerful symbol. Before we go to there, which I think we should talk about at the end, tell me, what were you like as a kid? Useless. Useless. Just... Only interested, only wanting to do things that I enjoyed doing, hated school. My mum gave me a pile of scrapbooks, which I've still got, which the teacher would say, he's a perfectly nice kid. This is when I was like five or six, you know, seven, probably up to about 10. said, he's a nice kid, but we hardly even know he's here because he doesn't do any of the classes. All he does is sit under the table drawing. Wow. And so she would say, well, I don't really know what we do with that. And she said, you should try and maybe, you know, get him to pay more attention. And, sort of, and she said, he doesn't listen. He doesn't want to do that. Can you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can yeah. you remember hiding and not hiding? Just sitting under, under the table. table. Teachers would just go, look, if he's being quiet, just get under the table. And I, I was doing that when I was 15. And what part of London was this? South London. I grew up in Stockwell, Clapham. My dad had the restaurant in Fulham and we sort of lived all over, but it was sort of South London. But I was totally useless. And then I had a, an incident when I was 14 where I died, where my sister found me hanging on the banisters. It wasn't really hanging on the banisters. It was like, you know, we've got the banisters on the wall. Yeah. So it's just like a pole. Yeah, like a handrail, yeah. I was lying on the stairs with a school tie tied very tight around my neck, eyes open, dead. And she came out, she would have been 10, and said, caught my mum in that he was in the front room and just said, David's dead on the stairs. And my mum went, what? She went out there and saw me and uh, called the ambulance and they came around and said, oh no, he's, he's dead. And then they, um, they said, oh no, he's, he's dead. And my mum said, oh, you, maybe you should try and get him going again. And they got me going again got me to hospital and then the hospital said he's alive but he won't live the night and if he does survive he'll be a vegetable i think it was in those days you could actually call someone a vegetable yeah you, well, it, was, do it, now, it was normal and then the following morning they came around and gave me the last rites again and then i was in a coma for about a week and came out uh, there's so many questions yeah <laughs> how did that happen you know what it's one of those things where i have no idea it wasn't intentional i don't know i don't know don't think i've got suicidal tendencies I do remember being at school before that. There's an awful lot of stuff that I don't remember, obviously, from that particular moment in time. When I came out, my memory was all over the place. My short-term memory yeah, was yeah, all over the place. But I don't, I have no idea. I don't, I th I, I'd like to think that I was playing a trick on my sister, yeah. pretending to be dead, and then slipped. Yeah. But I don't know. No oh, idea. It's just younger 14. than you. She's 10. She was 10 at the time, yeah. Four years younger than me. Fucking hell. Did you, have you, that, oh. Done a right. regression or anything? So, so yes, that's an well, interesting question. Well, somebody said to me you should, and I just thought, you know what? It sort of bounced off me. It hasn't really affected me massively. Leave it where it I is think, then. Yeah, because imagine if you suddenly go there and think, oh, fuck, it was me. 
Or you go there and it was shit. Some bloke crept in through the window and did it. Yeah. I'm kind of all right about it. There's so much. Mm, Yeah. yeah. Like your mum, don't you think you should have a go at getting him going again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Proper old school. Yeah, but she's old school. But why didn't the ambulance drivers? Because, well, I mean, this is kind of the story I've been told is that they turned up and went, oh, he's dead. Because, you know, eyes open, tongue comes out, bleeding out of the nose and everything. And, you know, all cut blue. And they said, oh, he's dead. And she just went, fucking get him going. And they obviously did something. I don't know what happened. I don't know how. I wasn't technically there. Yeah, so I don't know. don't know what happened. I mean, you've got your mum and your sister and you in this yeah. scenario. Yeah. Who do you think has been the most damaged by that? My sister. Yeah. Can't talk about it. In fact, it's only recently that I've been talking about it quite a lot, probably because I had to do a talk a while ago all about sort of rebirth and starting again. And this woman that I know said, oh, you know, you, you've gone from being in advertising where you had a pretty successful agency to leaving all of that behind and going down the snake and then having to climb back up the ladder. And I said, oh, I've got better than that. I mean, I've, technically, I've respawned. You know, I'm a zombie. And um, I remember talking to my sister about it and saying, oh, you know, you found me. Do you want to talk about it? And she says, no, I can't talk about it. And so I can talk about it with my mum, but I've never done it really. It's really odd. Don't know if it's just one of those things where, you know, if you're a parent, you know, I live in constant fear of my children's health and safety. Yeah, because of this. Well, I think it's just parents, isn't it? You know, your biggest fear is that something would happen to your children. And, you know, for my dad and for my mum, you know, my parents are divorced at the time. And that whole thought of walking out and seeing your child dead must just have been beyond horrendous. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine. Your parents were divorced not long before then? Not long, yeah. Okay. That year. Or separately, they moved, you know, they separated that year. How did that? I mean, I'm not suggesting there's a link here. You know what? I think it's just my theory is whoever's playing chess with us or cards just keeps giving you bad cards, you know? That's a bad and see, see what happens. Yeah. Go on, deal with this one. Bonk. Oh, try that. Twist. See what happens now. I don't know. It's, it's very hard to explain. But, you know, the way I look at it is I'm all right. Yeah. Oh, you're more than all right. You're absolutely flying. I know I've probably got lots of issues as a result of it. I mean, I would have had oxygen starvation for about five minutes, four and a half minutes or however long I was dead for. Yeah. And they say that that would have caused mental illness of some sort. I guarantee there's a whole bunch of shit of attachment, emotional things that I feel or that I don't feel that are probably as a result of that. Absolutely. Wow. Before that, running about as yeah. a kid, as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, yeah. how free did you feel? Totally free. I mean, you know, I was just running around all the time. And then, of course, as I told you, when I went to school, I never did anything. So I was, I was total freedom. I just sit under the table drawing all day. And then oh, it's like four o'clock, you've got to go home and get your tea. And then I'd go skateboarding all night. I mean, I, was, I did nothing. Well, you did everything. Well, I did everything, but I didn't do anything that I was supposed to do. It's kind of like there were loads of things that I probably should have been doing that I just. I I heard a really, I heard a really interesting and dreadful conversation the other day. It was was a brief for a piece of work I'm doing in Liverpool at the moment, and there was an expert on there talking about kids and care. And he said, "I've heard it said that the problem is that kids aren't school shaped anymore." Mm. I mean, I was in on the train actually screaming, "No, no, no, no! School should be kid shaped." I think it's just the way that. The modern world has sort of formed is that we like to create rules and tick boxes for everything. You know, the thing I loved about you know, growing up in that era was it was loose. Yeah. You know, loads of bad shit would happen, loads of good shit would happen, but you were just bouncing off everything. Whereas now the corridors are so narrow for everything. You know, so when you go to school, this is how you have to do it. And if you want to be successful in school, this is how you do it. And it leaves very little room for people who aren't shaped like that. Yeah. You know, when I, I've discovered that my son is OCD, he's got ADHD, he's got uh, dyslexia. When we were getting him tested, I was sitting in the room for OCD and dyslexia, and the bloke was taking us through, what do you feel and how's it? And I was like, mate, that's me. Squared. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I look at numbers when I do maths, and it all, they all, it's literally like watching ice cubes melt. They just go, Pfft. I just cannot. And when I'm doing my VAT return, I do it, but it's like the most paralyzing thing I you do. You zero, it does it for you. Yeah, well, no, I've, I've got zero, but it's when my accountant then calls up and goes, what are all these things you've bought? And, and I'm like, I don't know. None of your business, put them through. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, now when you look at the way the world has gone, which is so accepting of issues that people might have, it's amazing. But I think we swerve from one side of the road to the other so violently that, you know, it used to be you're thick and you're, you know, you just get left behind. Yeah. And now all the effort goes into looking after you, probably to the detriment of other people. And I just think 
we will eventually work out there is a system that recognises yeah. what people are good at and what they're not good at and help push them in the right direction. Because, you know, when you look at when you were a child, when you did careers... You're talking evenings, to Nicola now. Sorry, I'm talking yeah. to Nicola, not you. <laughs> just for, yeah, just for the tape. <laughs> sorry, I keep thinking we're being filmed. But it's like, uh, you know, you would have, when you did careers evenings, the jobs you would have had at your disposal would have been minimal. Secretary, work in a factory. Well, Nick's mum's only aspiration, I'm talking for Nick because she's not got a microphone on. Yeah. Nick's mum's only aspiration for her, and this is no criticism, was you can do anything, but just please don't work in a factory. It was like, that one's below you, that one's yeah. all right. And, and you're right, and where we grew up in the big textile industry in the Midlands, the hosiery industry, they were your options. And yeah. for boys, it was manual trades, electrician, yeah. plumber, builder, or you were lucky, I don't know whether you were lucky or not, you probably earned more money being a plumber, escape to university. There's a great conversation with yeah. Alexi Sale and Stuart Lee about this, where they say at that point in time, where it felt normal, the only time you could as a working class boy, man, woman, leave school, spend three years fucking about to work out what you wanted to do, leave uni, go on some kind of support scheme. You were paid <laughs> to work out what you wanted to do, to be able to, in their case, perform comedy in a town that the people who came to watch you could afford to live in. Yeah. And you thought that was the way it was always going to be. Yeah, no, no, no. yeah I know. And, and the, what they say was the left make the same mistake again and again and again. The right will only make a mistake once. And that was letting some people up. Yeah. Not doing that again. I know. And we live in that education is, it's not lifting anymore. It's not lifting, but also it's because you've got too many people who see education as business. Yeah. You know, I look at one of the issues that I see with the creative arena yeah, they're all huge businesses. I remember doing some judging once for an end-of-year show at St. Martin's back in the 90s. I had an agency called St. Luke's. It was a cooperative, really cool place to work. It was, you know, I was a co-founder with five other people, and it was all done to try and create a really modern way of working with clients and staff and also the community. That's why it wasn't named after the five middle-class white guys that owned it. It was named as a cooperative. Yeah. It was a cooperative, equal shareholders. It was a really cool place. Now, I was invited to go and judge the end of year show at St. Martin's and the bloke came up to me and said, oh, um, by the way, before you start looking at the quality of the work, if you can't say their name, you can't fail them. And I was like, what do you, what? What do you mean by that? And he says, if they're foreigners, you're not allowed to fail them. And I said, why is that? And he goes, because they pay 60 grand a year to do the course and all the English kids pay eight. And so if they then go back to Taiwan or to Korea or to China or wherever they're from, Japan, with a fail, it's no good. That you said that a lot of them don't speak English. They just do what they want to do. Miss the brief, probably. And you miss yeah. the brief. It doesn't really matter. You just pass them, Bloody and then they, they go back because if you fail them, it's no good for business. And I felt very compromised because you know, hour before that and an hour after, I was working in an agency that was absolutely you know we would vet all of the clients that we work with. We would vet all of our staff. You know, try and set these values, and you'd have integrity at the heart of everything. It was a proper you know Buddhist business. So how did you get from under the desk? To setting up, at the time, one of the most influential agencies in the UK. Just luck. Pure luck. I was doing peanuts and olives in my dad's restaurant. It was in Chelsea. A lot of the top agencies at the time were all based in Knightsbridge, you know, Lowhow, Spink, Davison Pierce. A lot of very good agencies were around there. And they used to use his restaurant as like their canteen. So I'd go in there as a 14-year-old and you'd see all of it, Frank Lowe, you'd see all of these faces. My dad knew everyone. I remember coming back when I was at college, nicking a copy of Campaign from the library, going in sort of thinking, oh, somebody came in and talked to us about advertising. But I remember talking to my dad saying, all these people that just seem to eat lunch all day, what do they do? They all moved in slow motion, these blokes in advertising. Big fucking haircuts, <laughs> cashmere jumpers, Gucci loafers. That was the thing, Gucci loafers. And I remember one bloke had, he had a seam down the front of his jean. Oh, well, not a seam, but it was iron. Yeah, he got a crease. And he just looked, and it was just like, fuck, who does that? No one. And then they'd sit there with these beautiful women in the 70s, all just eating lunch all day. And I'm behind the bar cleaning glasses and fucking filling up peanut, touching olives. I saying to my dad, well, what do these people do? They didn't seem to do any work. You know, it's like five o'clock, they're still having lunch. He was like, advertising. I was like, ooh. Advertising. That sounds like my kind of I'll gig. Try and get into that game. Can I get under the yeah. desk and draw? And he knew, and he knew everybody because I remember taking this copy of Campaign back, and he just went, "Oh, I know him, and I know her, and he's allergic to shellfish, and he owes me five quid." And you know, he knew everybody, and so I just went old school. I still got him. I used to write letters to him. Hello, you know my dad. You owe him twelve pound fifty. Well, you you're allergic to shellfish. Can I come and work in your agency for a bit? And they just always go yes. And I'd go in there, and they probably just thought I was a twat. Because I did nothing. I'd just sit under the table drawing all day. That's what, literally what I did. 
And then I just got to know all the people and just sat there and just rode it, just kept going in and just kept chancing it. And then went to college, did graphics. Where did you go to college? Epsom. Yeah. Which is like, you know, Surrey. Yeah. So you stayed relatively local. Stayed pretty close. Yeah. You know, I was, at the time when I died, I was living in just outside London, Motsford Park with my mum. Yeah. And my dad was living in Fulham above the restaurant. And then he moved back out. And so I was living with him for a bit. Yeah. And so I just kept going in and just trying stuff and just seeing people. And then oddly enough, I did a thing for my end of year show where, do you remember Edward Mybridge who did yeah. all the beautiful images of horse running all four yeah. feet off the ground? But there was one lovely series of pictures that I had in this book of a gymnast a guy doing all these different moves. And um, I remember stretch jeans were the thing. And so I did a copy of this image and then just colored the legs in blue and then just cut together this little video um, with a music track that I cut together and just put it in a portfolio and went to go and see somebody at CDP. And they said, oh, we're going to present this to the client for Wrangler. And I was like, I don't even know. What does that mean? And they said, well, we might make it as an advert. And I was like, what? And then I think it was because of that. It never happened. But I just remember thinking, what have I, what's happening here? I just couldn't work out. And then Advertising was a pretty small business in those days. And they would go, God, this is fucking student. He's like 15, 16. He might be making a Wrangler ad. And then it just got passed around. And then I got teamed up with somebody and I just ended up getting a job. Who with? TBWA was the first agency I worked at. Yeah. And TBWA at the time had just lost Bartle Bogle Hegarty. They were running TBWA London. They'd all just left to go and set up their own agency. So the agency was in a big transitional moment and we went in chaos. there. You like chaos? Again, loved it. It was, it was mental. You know, sort of went in there and survived a year, but the, the place was, it was just sort of stuck. It was just held together and then it all kind of collapsed in on itself for a little bit. And I think what I noticed with a lot of agencies, you know, they grow and then they pop and then they shrink or they grow and they get harder. Or they, and they get spit bigger. out many agencies. Spit, and, and, yeah. yeah, they spit out and it happens. And so I just saw that happening quite a lot. And then I ended up at a place called WCRS. You know, I needed a job, but I worked there for a couple of years and then we got made redundant from there. We got fired by this bloke who came in and then literally got fired which is, again, massively chaotic. It would have been 80, 88, something like that, recession. Yeah. Day after we got fired, we got hired by um, an agency called Hal Henry, who were my old bosses. And that was, you know, a startup, massively chaotic again. You know, you go in there, it's like we're sitting above a record shop on Dean Street. You know, didn't know what the fuck we were doing. And it was just chaos. I know it's 88, so we're post-punk, but there's a bit of, like, we talk about startup culture now, and it, we romanticise it in many, many ways. But yeah. that kind of like just making it up as you go along in the, in the middle of Soho when Soho still had a bit of edge to well, it. Well, it was above a record shop called Daddy Cools that was this reggae shop. And yeah. when they had clients coming in, they'd have to get them to turn the bass down because it was just this douche, 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 <laughs> and weeds emanating through the floor. There was also a prostitute who lived on the top floor. So You'd be on a Friday night at about nine o'clock, you'd be working on a pitch for the Monday and some bloke would come knocking on the door. He goes, Mandy about, and we're going, no, mate, she moved. She's down on Berwick Street. You know? <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was hysterical. But so had real guts at the time. It was a really interesting place to be part of. I still it? love it, but it's not that It's totally anymore. different. It's, it's totally, not I mean, it's like anymore. Shoreditch, you know. Shoreditch now is like Covent Garden. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Soho had a kind of raw edge to it. I remember being scared there in the, yeah. in the early 80s on a school trip. And being isolated from my friends. And we were in, I was in search of a pair of Dr. Martin sold monk shoes from Shelley's. Yeah, yeah. And, and I got isolated from my mates. And just, just not for long. It was only like, I'm not, I'm not a kid, right? I'm, a, I'm probably about 14. But just for a moment, I, I looked around and everything that was bright lit, neon and exciting suddenly looked really flipping sketchy and exploitative. <laughs> well, well done. Trust your instinct. It's because it was. <laughs> it was. And the, and the more you went kind of, West in Soho, the worst it, the worst got. it got. Yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, yeah. And then I, then I saw my mates. Well, then suddenly you hit Carnaby Street, or you hit yeah. Then you're back you know, in the big Regent Street, of... and it's all civilized. Yeah. And then you sort of turn back round, and it's all dark and really but skanky. The wolves and, and the werewolves are still there. They're still there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll find them. It's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? How, how much it's changed. So you're above a record shop, below a prostitute, working in all these sort of stuff. So obviously, really small agency to start with. Then I went big agency. Then I went startup. Then I left the startup after about four years of huge amounts of change. I split up with my partner at the time, ran away to a great big multinational, JWT, worked there for a couple of years, then went back to Hal Henry for a few months and then got offered a job at 28 to run with my partner at the time, a guy called Naresh Ramchandani, to run the London office of Chiat Day, which is the big American network. Again, my fucking 28. Didn't know shit from Sherbert. 
you know, you suddenly end up running this agency and we didn't really know what we were doing. But the way we looked at it was every other fucker's had a go at this place. None of them have done anything. If we fuck it up, we're just another body on a pile of bodies. But if we do all right, we're the fuckers who turned it around. Yeah. And so there was a very kind of... You had nothing to lose, right? Nothing to lose at all. There were like 20 people there. It was a total mess. But the Americans didn't like traveling. So we just thought, well, fuck it. We, just, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Mum and dad are away. We can... Yeah. They don't want to come over. As long as they see the numbers are all right. But the numbers have been so shit for fucking five years. You can't you know, fail, can you? If you turn up and go, we've made a little bit of a profit this month, they'll buy you all a drink. And I remember there was a sort of attitude that myself and Narish had. You know, he's, he's Indian, same as me. He's Indian parents, born over here. We made a rule that we would never hire any English people. <laughs> Only hire people who were foreigners. And so we did. I remember we hired this brilliant German art director called Clarissa von Munster, who was a, a lady. I think she's now retired to the Bavarian countryside. She was an amazing designer. We hired Kessels Kramer. So the two guys, Kessels and Kramer from Amsterdam, who've now gone on, they went on after that and set up Kessels Kramer. Amazing. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant. And we had a Japanese girl that I hired, couldn't even speak English. And when I came back, she'd gone. But it was just mayhem. How does it feel? I mean, it's interesting. The way you talk, you're finding really raw talent. And there's something magic that happens when they come in to what you do because they grow and they leave. And I've, I've always said, Letting people go is actually a really the most beautiful impo- thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Powerful thing you can do. That's not at all like the advertising agency was at the time. The way you ran that business, very different from the we mustn't let them go, we must offer them more money, we must trap them. Well, we always used to try and do this thing, and it was something that Narish always spoke very, a lot of, was to pay people what you want from them, not what they're worth. So it was a projected. So when you reviewed them, you would say, this is what I want you to do, this is what we should be doing next year. You know, this is what you did this year. Well done. You need to be doing more of that, less of this, blah, 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 blah. But I'm going to pay you for what I want you to do next year. So you'll try and give them a comfortable situation to be in and try and bring the best out of them. Because the thing that's very frustrating for a lot of creatives is you're working for lots and lots of people in advertising. You're working for, you know, at worst, the spineless account director, the, the manipulative planner, the client that doesn't give a fuck, the consumer. I mean, it's just there's a shower of people, all of whom have got limited interest in what you're trying to do and the creatives are the idiots who are there on a weekend thrashing it out keep going i want to try and do something that breaks the mold that challenges that does this and i was fortunate enough to work in an agency like hal henry where at the time i mean it won agency of the decade in that era but it was like you know stephen axe the creators were the best creatives in in london at the time adam lurie was the best planner pricey was the best money man and rupert was the best account director and they created this thing that when the client went there, you had to be fucking switched on. You weren't going there for a quick ride and some average ads. You were going to transform your business. And so to be part of that was just amazing. And I always hankered after that. I was liked working with clients who had a bit of ambition, whereas most clients go, yeah, we're really ambitious. And then you show them something that's ambitious and they go, yeah, not that ambitious. Just we're really disruptive. Yeah, disruptive. But not that disruptive. Just do, just do what we did last year so I can get my summer bonus and I can fuck off to Lanzarote or whatever. And so it just deteriorated over the years, that whole attitude of ambition from clients. And so a big part of what we liked to do at the time was to be part of agencies that, well, hold on a second, what about if you try and be disruptive in the agency model? Because all agencies are named after four white men, yeah. all with Oxbridge educations, all of whom rip off clients, treat their staff like idiots, sexism, the most appalling places you could ever imagine. So when we did St. Luke's and called it St. Luke's, Everyone's like, what? You fucking idiots. What is it, like a cult? No, no, we're just not doing it like you boring fucks. You know, it's just different. <laughs> and we won lots of amazing business. We worked with some incredible clients. I remember working with Boots Number 7 and 19, which was the sort of teenage brand. And, um, and then we were also working with The Body Shop, and they're kind of competing. But I remember working when we worked with Roddick, she just said, well, I don't care. As long as you don't put the same people on my business as you do on their business, we can work together. Who would ever do that? She was amazing. was amazing. Yeah, she was amazing. And just working with people like that. And, and she was a kind of big, you know, in a way, a big part of the kind of formulation of us thinking like that was driven by working with people like that because she can set up an extraordinarily successful business that doesn't hurt people, doesn't have to fuck people over, can treat people, staff and suppliers fairly. And still make a lot of money. And she deserved every penny she got. You're absolutely right. She was legendary and um, much missed. It's interesting. You reminded me when you were talking about St. Luke's, the body shop of Wyden Kennedy and Nike. And it's mm. often said, who made whom? I don't know who made whom. 
And was there a little bit of that with you and the body shop? Not really. I mean, we didn't really work with the body shop long enough. They were a much more established brand. It was better for us to work with them than it was for them to work with us, I think. But it, it was just, you know, the people that you would come across. I mean, we were working with Midland Bank at the time. That was a big corporate, you know, bully boy. But it was good to sort of, you could still work with them and you could try and work with them in interesting ways. IKEA was probably the one that we segued most notably with because they launched a couple of years earlier and it hadn't really taken off. And um, I remember they came in and they were like, we've got this lovely furniture. And I think at the time, UK furniture was all heavy oak. Yeah. You know, it was all, and the stuff that we had at home as 20-year-olds would all be the shit that your mum and dad didn't want. So they would give you that big oak mantelpiece or whatever it was and uh, you would sort of go, hmm. But it's my dad gave it to so I can't really, can't say I'm no. Spray it can't, really, can't throw it out. <laughs> And then you get the curtains and then all of a sudden you've replicated your auntie. You've got fucking doilies everywhere and it's just like, oh my God. So when we worked with them, we were working with a great planner at the time, a guy called John Grant. And I remember when we pitched for it, we won it. And then they came in and said, oh, this is what we want to do. And we got this blonde wood and we want to do all these colours and it's all kind of cheap so that people treat it like fashion. And he said, the problem is people don't like that furniture. In this country, we like different types of furniture. And so you can keep advertising your blonde wood 20 pound cabinets and no one's going to be interested you've got to do a pole pop moment where you destroy the old way of living and so that's where we did that chuck out the chintz i was going to say was chuck out the chintz you chuck out the chintz and it was just like chuck out your chintz and it was just in, um, you know there was very specific moments in that which was like make it all come from women there are no blokes in the ads so when you watch it there are no men in it because men don't make any of those decisions all women make the decisions make it a song slag off doilies slag off pelmets have all something of that to fight stuff. against. Have yeah. something to fight against. Get a skip and throw all of that shit it's in like a skip. A, it's like a valance. What the fuck yeah, is yeah, a yeah, valance for? But who needs that in yeah, their lives? No, no one. No. A skirt for but a now you would look at it and just go, my God, the yeah. stuff we had in those days, disgusting. Curtain pelmets. Yes. Like an extra curtain on top of a curtain. Why would you need it? It's because some fucking bloke in 1640 <laughs> thought it was a good idea. And we just stuck with it. That was brilliant, that. Nick's sister's partner at the time used to be able to run up a lovely pelmet cover. Oh. It was very handy on a sewing machine, yeah. actually. But again, oh. you, you'd go to their house. Like, no disrespect to Nick's sister, she's absolutely adorable. But I'd go to their house and I would see my parents' house in their house. And, and, and I always felt it was because we moved away, London, then, then Leeds, Bradford, and they didn't. And I was like, well, that, they've just absorbed, it's like osmosis. Yeah. But I, I don't know whether there is that or whether it's, it's to do with being exposed to other things, having different aspirations. I don't know what it is, but now I'm paranoid about giving my kids our cast-offs and them thinking the same thing. you know thing. what? I think, well, you just look at the two of you. 30 years ago, you wouldn't have looked like that. No. And um, well, I We just, did look like this 30 years ago, yeah, but no, our parents but I just, didn't. But, you know, yeah. I, I drove through Wales the other week, and you know, I remember 20 years ago, you drive through Wales. It was like going back in time. It was. Yeah. You know, you go to Swansea, it was literally like, hold on, I'm in medieval, I'm in like a medieval film set. Now, everybody's got a fucking French bulldog. Everyone's wearing Uggs. Everyone's yeah. got... You know, it's, it's, everything's changed. Everything has changed, no, and it's become much easier for everybody to become cool wherever you are. Was being cool in your psyche? I don't, I don't think so. I've never purposely gone out to try and be cool, but I think it does help when you live in London and you're in a business like design or advertising. You're surrounded by business. cool people. You're, yeah. you're sort of having to try and be challenging. And I think the minute you challenge something, you immediately become cool, right? I think when you challenge something, you, you immediately grow as well. Yeah, and also you realise how fucking easy it is. I mean, it's like to stand out in the advertising business, which is, like I said, it was all the initials of four white men, and then you call it St. Luke's. Everyone went, oh, my God, it's like the second coming. It's like fire. Someone's discovered fire. And all you've got to do is just go, why don't we just not do the stupid ass thing? And I remember we were Chai at Day, the agency Chai at Day. Chai at Day was growing. We had lots of really good clients. We had about 40 people. Chai at Day got sold worldwide. And we just got a phone call on a Sunday night saying, you've been sold. And so we're like, oh, what happens to us then? Chiat Day and TBWA were going to merge, or TBWA was going to acquire Chiat Day. So Chiat Day in, in New York was fine. LA was fine because TBWA had no footprint in the States, but they were massive in London. We were all going to lose our jobs in London. So we all just said, well, what do we do? You know, three options. We either all just give them the keys and fuck off, and they take all the business or whatever they do, or some of us try and set up another agency, or we all collectively go off and set up another agency. So we did that. The management team, two of the management team, Abo, David Abraham, and uh, another guy called Andy Law went over to the States and said, look, it doesn't make any sense fucking up Chiat Day London. We'd also pitched against TBWA, ironically, for quite a bit of the new business. And the clients had said, look, 
we wanted to go TPWA, we would have given them the business. So we said to them, look, we're going to set up something new. Do you want to come with? And they said, all right, if you can guarantee the same people on the Monday are working on my business on Friday, we'll do it. So we literally took all the staff, all the clients, and moved into an empty toffee factory in Houston that was rent, you know, we had rent free for two years, I think. That's amazing. And we just moved in there. And it was just mental. Chaos again. Okay, and I've completely forgotten about that. It's mad. I just, it just suddenly all came back to me. But yeah, it was, it was mental. And we took all the staff. And they trusted you. How did you manage the money? But it was all kind of, it was all working. Work, Tribe so Day hadn't... was still good. It was good. It yeah, was good. So you we turned had... it around and it was working really well. And we had lots of great So you could great borrow clients. against business. Didn't have to borrow in those days. You didn't borrow. You just had it all coming in. That's amazing. So from there to becoming an artist, you were always an artist. But defining yourself as an art, this art thing, whatever yeah. you said. Well, I was, you know, I was always doing stuff on the side. I think I used to get very frustrated working in advertising because the ratio of coming up with ideas to making ideas was one in a hundred. Yeah. And also, you're, the, you're a chameleon. You're having a sort of one minute you're, you're selling Range Rovers, next minute you're selling makeup to 19-year-old girls. And so you just end up losing your identity about what kind of work you like to do. And also, you can't really put a personal flavour on your work. It's not like there are any people in advertising who sort of go, oh yeah, Steve Smith, he just does that kind of work. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like a, like a musician. So, you know, when you hear Robbie Williams or you hear ACDC, you know, oh, that's them. Whereas as an individual within an ad agency or even an, an ad agency output doesn't do that. No. They just have very bland work that spreads across a, a spectrum of, because you can't have competing clients either. So, you have to have a car brand, you have to have an airline brand, you have to have a bank, you have to have a fashion brand, soft drink. And once you've got that, it's like paying top trumps, you know. And so I, I kind of, St. Luke's started to believe their own bullshit. We started to hire a lot of idiots who wouldn't have come when it was crazy. They only came when it looked good to be on your CV. They go, yeah. St. Luke's Agency of the Year. I'll go and work there. That'll look I'll have good. a year I'll there and then I'll be all right. LinkedIn yeah. and then I'll go somewhere else. And so we just got flattered into hiring a load of idiots. And then, um, and then it just blew up. And I think I left early on and got a chance to go and work at Channel 4. Just got sick of advertising and then went Channel 4 to go and work as a, the creative director there. So I was creative directing all the bits between the programs. Had no idea what I was going to do, but I needed to get out. And I was hired by two people who were ex-clients of mine. Went over there, did two years and set up an agency within Channel 4 that was called 4 Creative. I remember. They used to have about 10 agencies doing all the ads. And I was like, why are you doing that? You've got all these amazing people in-house. So I had an office. They said, oh, because you're an executive, you have an office. I was like, but I don't like offices. I like being open. I like sitting with a load of people. I sit in an office all day, I go mad. I like sitting out here. They said, well, you're not allowed to sit out here. You've got an office. I said, well, I don't want the office. I said, all right, I'll have the office. And they said, oh, you've got a computer. But it's an executive computer because it's got a laptop that clicks into it. And I said, it's a PC, mate. It's not me. I want a Mac. So we can't have it. So I said, you know what? Fuck it. I'll go buy a Mac. So I bought my own Mac, put it out in the outside, had my office. But what I would do was, there was a girl I knew used to come around and do shoulder massages. And I said, right, you've got it for a day. And I'll just go around filling out who wants to do it at what time. And then they do massages in my office. Brilliant. And then we got a creative team in. And I said, right, you use the office to get away from everybody. And so it was the egg that ended up becoming for creative because I said, you don't need to have all these agencies. You can do it all in-house. It's like, we know the 16 things you're going to be working on throughout the 16 projects every year. I mean, it was the best year for anybody to ever work there because we were advertising, you know, Sex and the City, Queer as Folk, Big Brother. I and mean, it's like, fucking hell, mold-breaking programs. Three revolutionary yeah. shows. For all the folks, the Big Brother then became. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, is, this is, you know, 99. It was amazing. We had all had monitors on our desks that was a live feed, so you could click between, you know, what was going on. And um, there was that moment when uh, Nasty Nick blew up at Craig. I remember we all, the whole fucking floor, like, you know, I don't know, 400 people, just total silence, all just watching it, all in groups. And I remember they said, yeah, we've got this quite mold-breaking show. We think we're going to get like 900, 900,000. We've got like 6 million. And I think then they realised there was like a penny drop. They just went, hold on a second. We can actually still do stuff that's in our DNA, very mold-breaking, challenging programming that's populist. Yeah, totally. It's a really interesting time that was. I mean, it was a great show. It was, it was mold-breaking in the way that it was narrated and the whole thing. And of course, he gave the money to the girl who had cerebral palsy, I yeah, think, yeah, or yeah. Downs. And it was the perfect first series. But it wasn't a kind of wannabe mugs. It was no, like it became, genuinely it became somebody horrible. sat there and went, we're going to get a nun who's a lesbian and we're going to get a scouse plumber and then we're going to get a posh twat. 
And then we're going to get this other bloke who doesn't quite know what he's doing. And then we've got a girl who's a bit dirty, flirty, thirty, whatever. And you're just going to chuck them all in, give them alcohol, and see what happens. And it was the science and the, the it was kind magical. Of, that. It was I, we watched every one, didn't we? That era. Yeah, it's amazing. But people forget Channel Four state funded. They yeah. they forget that. I mean, it, it has adverts, but it's still state funded. It's yeah, a, yeah. the really brave visionary experiment launch in Channel 4. Yeah. And the world's richer because of it. And there's some shit on there too. Mate, I mean, I think it's like, you know, when you look at, and I remember something, there was a body of work that they did while I was there. I didn't, I didn't really have any involvement in it, but they came back and said, you know, trying to boil the rationale for the reason for it being there was, because um, it was punk. It was a punk brand. You know, I remember the night they launched, everyone else was showing Miss Universe and Channel 4 was showing a program with Ian McKellen about a disabled gay guy. They you know. showed that and they showed Patanyan Kipperbang. Yeah, Patanyan Kipperbang. It what was film? an amazing film. film. Yeah. yeah. But to sort of challenge that and go, you know, and they got one viewer, one or two viewers for that thing with Ian McKellen. And you really? just sort of go, that, but that's not the point. Brave. It's not about that. Yeah. What we want is we want to give people a choice. And to sort of be part of that was amazing. But also when they put together the kind of the reason for being, you know, their brand purpose was to be first, create change, make trouble. And I just thought, I love to that. be part of a brand, that that is what's written on their tombstone. Make trouble. Chaos great. again, Dave. Chaos. So what did you do after that? I did two years of that and then went and set up another agency called Karma Armour uh, with Narish, so the bloke I'd done Chiat Day and yeah. St. Luke's and Hal Henry with. I'd sort of worked with him for a long time. We'd had these sort of moments where we'd part and then come back together again. Did Karma Armour, uh, another startup. Is he older than you? Same. We're both, he's a year older than me. Yeah. It was all right. I mean, it's, you know, the thing is, when you start up with this, two of you, we were in my kitchen in Spitalfields doing it, and then we moved to a slightly bigger office, and we went, oh, proper immigrant way of working. Didn't get any loans. Started it with four grand each, get the computers in. Then we rent the small office, and we just kept getting this sort of startup clients, and it was all going really good. And then um, we had a big fallout in 2005. He with each other? With each other. Direction of the company. I think we had been, we got Ikea out of St. Luke's. Like four of us were running it. It was unbelievable. And we did some amazing work and then we lost IKEA and I think it was 90% of the agency's billings and it just fucked us. And so we had a big, it was like, right, start again. And I, I took that moment to sort of go, look, I don't think it's really working. We need to sort of look at the way that we are working or not working and address that. Well, if we're going to slip down the snake and we've got to start again, then let's rebuild it on more solid foundations. And it just became very apparent that it wasn't going to work. So, so Narish left, I carried on. And then we grew it for the next 10 years, got up to about 300 people. It went really well. But also created a thing that I didn't want to have anything to do with. You know, we always wanted to set up agents. You know, our background, me and him, was very arch. It was like immigrants, immigrant mentality. We do things that are fair and decent. And, you know, that's not advertising. Advertising is white male, middle class. Women have a role, which is subservient. We treat our clients like shit. We take them out whoring and coking and doing all of those things. I don't think never did any of that. And so when he left, I worked, I got some other partners in, just probably a bit of a mistake looking back. But, you know, the agency ended up being very successful. However you term success, for me, it was a disaster. It just got big and ugly. And there was a sort of moment in 2000 and probably from about 2006 to about 2011, 12, when I was, had a great time. Yeah. We set up a production company. It was just sort of, What's the smart thing to do that no one else is doing? Let's set up our own production company. And it was amazing. Well, that was a time when there were very few production companies. Very few. And yeah. lots of work to do. Yeah. And now it's the opposite way around. And we There's did it specifically few. for one client, Nintendo, who came along and said, I mean, it was all based on a lie. It was a terrible lie because they came along and said, we are launching new product the whole time, software and hardware. Every time we pitch that to an agency, historically, they pitch the ad out to six or seven production companies, which means they've got all that information. They know about we, or they know about we fit, and they know about all of our top secret stuff. How the fuck are you going to make that work? And so we just said, well, we've got our own production company here, which were mates of mine from Channel 4 who are working on the floor below. And we had a door in the office called the minicab office. It was a tiny little meeting room at the back of the office that had a, sl- a glass slot down the thing. And we got a student to sit there with his desk and just put some cans of film metal film cans on a desk and it just said um, editing on the door and when the client came around we said oh we've got our own production company they called K Broadcast and they said how's that work so we do commercials for people but obviously if, you know, when, you, when you're working with brands like yours that have got secret information and you want to hold on to it by doing it all in house it means none of that and they have clients who go fuck what that's amazing 
I said, also, we undercut everybody else by 35%. So we do everything 35% cheaper. Then they said, oh, we, we love it. And uh, we're going to give you the business, but, and we want to start straight away. So can, we, can you get us to meet the people from K Broadcast? And we were like, yeah, yeah, of course. And then it was like, right, you two blokes from Channel 4 days, my old mates, Eddie and uh, John, you can set up a business called K Broadcast. No questions asked, just do it. And it was amazing. We, I mean, we saved Nintendo a million quid, saved them a million quid Whoa, in the first year. That is amazing. Which was insane. And they couldn't believe it. They were like, how the fuck have you managed to save us a million quid? And they had us audited because they didn't believe it. That's incredible. And we made lots of money out of them as well. But it yeah, was yeah. like, no, we saved you a million quid because everyone else is fucking ripping you off. And this was the thing that I loved doing was like, why have we all got to rip everybody off all the time? Yeah, business should be but kind. That's, that's unfortunately when you make white males from Oxbridge in control of business, everyone's going to get ripped off. Of course they are. Of course and they are. And all the girls are going to get touched inappropriately. I mean, it's a fucking disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, well, it's happened, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's proved. So it was really good to sort of challenge that. But you left there. Yeah, and then I just got fucked off of that. After 14 years, it just got big and I just couldn't stand it. I looked around one day and I went, there's too many people. They're all us. And um, my job was just so shit. It was just like I was the founder, so I'd have to get wheeled into meetings. And I just hated it. And I just thought, all right, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to walk out. So I walked out and um, they put me on gardening leave for a year to try and kill myself. I wanted to set up some small thing. I didn't really know what I wanted. Yeah. I knew I couldn't do that. And it was like standing in a burning building. You know, you either jump or you just burn. And so I jumped. And then I did the screen printing course at Print Club, which was just around the corner. I, wanted yeah. to do, I remember I wanted to do three things. I wanted to learn how to save someone's life. I wanted to do sculpting and screen printing. Screen printing just happened to be the first course I did, which was like the weekend after I'd left. And I just went, yeah, fuck saving lives and sculpting. This is what I want to do. And it's something about, you know, I come from that world of advertising. Propaganda was what I loved doing. It's punk. What yes, you, yeah, but, what? It's, but suddenly being able to make that. And yeah. when you look at the way Jamie Reed and punk happened, it was all screen printing. It was. And screen printing was driven by what was happening with pop artists, you know, yeah. multimedia, quick, multiple executions. And I just thought, fuck, now I know how to make stuff. I can make all of those ideas that I couldn't make with anybody else. And so I thought... I'll do a year. If I can be an artist in a year, that'll be amazing. But it didn't work. Just about founding my foot in after a year and a half, two years of it. So I, I went and worked for an American agency called Crispin Porter for a couple of years. And that was a fucking dog's dinner. And we, we turned that around. And then I just sat there and thought, fuck it. You know what? I, I just keep doing the same old shit. Wake up in the morning and having this ambition to do this thing. And then when it doesn't work out, I leave. And then I go and do it again. And I just kept doing it. And so I left Crispin with the bloke, one of the, one of the other guys that I got in, Arjun Singh, who was uh, another immigrant pal of mine. And we set up another agency called Unlimited Inc., which was just a small thing where we would lock on to, we knew a lot of people who had startups and it was like locking on to them and working with founders. Mm. And you'd sit in a room with a founder who had all the ambition in the world and no money. And it was like, can't cook, won't cook. It's like, right, you've got dog food, Rice Krispies, Primitive cheese and, a, spread. and a bit of off bacon. Yeah. What are you going to do with it? And we just, and I love, I love that chaos. How Again, did you get chaos. paid if they had no money? I've got equity and everything, mate. So you, equity you grew on, equity the back of their, on the back of, you powered their well, we growth were, and then grew The interesting it. thing was we worked with this bank called Moneys yeah. that was specifically created, you know, the, the, the bloke who founded it, Norris, is an Estonian designer. He came over to the country, got a job, got a flat, couldn't get a bank account, so his whole world fell apart. He came back, set up this thing where you can get a bank account just by phoning up. Yeah. And of course, you get a load of skanky drug addicts and hookers doing it to get bank accounts. But it was great because it, I, lo I love that thing of helping people who are on that. We used to call them the unstoppables. It was like people who fucking want to make something new of their lives. You know, my parents. Yeah. And so I felt a very personal attraction to that. And same with Arch. You know, his parents both came over from Trinidad. Same thing. You've got a little bit of cash in your pocket and you make it work. And so we worked with him. The scam was that he gave us equity. They gave us a little bit of money. But we got rent-free offices. So we worked out of their offices because they just had tons of space. And so we, we won lots of other accounts and we did lots of stuff. And it was really good. And after two years of that, it was that thing. I, what am I doing? I keep doing the same thing. I keep doing the same thing. Make the same mistake I don't want to be yeah. the bloke who set up 25 ad agencies and then died. I just thought that would be a horrendous failure. One day I looked at the numbers and I went, hold on a second. I'm doing the art two days a week on weekends and before work and after work. And I'm having more fun and I'm making more money than I was in advertising. So I just went, see ya. So there's the point that the slide that goes across. But many people would look at where you were and see that as the pinnacle. That was the time to almost get out, retire, buy a big house in the country. Well, I didn't have any money. I mean, you know, I, I had all my equity. I had loads of equity in Karma Armour. 
handed it over to these mugs, these two twats that I was working with at the time, and um, said, you know, I've got shares, I've got loan notes, my equity. So when you sell it, which is what you're going to do, because you're not doing this because it's your calling or because it's something you really want to do, you're doing it to fucking flog it. And of course, they took all the equity in the shares and they spread them amongst themselves. So they all made a shitload of money when they sold it to Accenture. And I got a phone call saying, you haven't got very much money. That's all right. Because my thing is, I'm going to kill them both. <laughs> it's true. When I get diagnosed with that incurable... When you get something terminal. When I get something terminal, you. I know that my kids aren't going to look after me. So I'll go hunting for those two twats, do them, and, and then that, I'll get looked after you know what by... that is? That's karma-rama. That is karma. But it's that's karma. Exactly. It's karma, exactly. And it'll be the best fun I've ever had. The work you do now, Dave, is a genuinely mischievous, fun, funny, and fucking punky exciting. Well, it's this sort of weird thing where I remember in that year where I wasn't allowed to work, I went into two galleries. Well, I did this thing before that, actually, when I was still at Kamarama, uh, when Charles Saatchi strangled his wife in the restaurant. Yeah. I thought that was such a shit thing to do. But I thought, let's take the piss out of him because he's positioned himself as some sort of celeb. Yeah. And let's bash him up. Let's throw a punch at him. So I bought a shop dummy off eBay, went down and got a suit and shirt and uh, shoes from TK Maxx. Sawed the head off, got that Fimo plasticine that you cook in the oven, made Charles Sarchi's head, and he had a book at the time called Be the Worst You Can Be, yeah, I remember. where he was bright red with horns. And so I copied that, stuck it back on the body, taped the head back on, built it, had one arm like that, and then the other arm was like that, and he could move it, and you could take a selfie getting strangled by Charles Sarchi. Brilliant. So I did it. I had no idea what I was going to do with it. The agency was shitting themselves because they were like, oh my God, if Charles Sarchi sees this and we're ad agency, he's going to sue us. So I sent out an email to three people. I didn't know anybody in the art world. One was jealous. One was Lazaridis. One was one of the other ones. Didn't know who it was. And all I said was, do you want to do something naughty? Nothing else. Within a minute of sending one to Jealous, Dario, the owner of Jealous, sent one back saying, yeah, go on, what is it? I didn't know him. No idea who he was. He didn't know me. But because I just said, do you want to do something naughty? And I said, I've got this fucking model of Charles Archie. I don't know what to do with it. He had a gallery, jealous up in Crouch End and Shoreditch. But it was only Crouch End at the time. And he said, brilliant. Can you get it over to us? And I said, yeah. So I put it in the back of a van, drove it up there, gave it to him. He put it in his main floor with a sign saying, this is not Charles Archie. Come and get a selfie taken being strangled by not Charles Archie. <laughs> it's been done by a young, unknown British artist. So I go away on holiday for a week, sitting in Italy, reading a copy of The Sun. Ding, 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 page seven. Fucking hell. <laughs> Picture of Charles Archie, statue. Young, unknown artist. I'm like in hysterics. Agency absolutely shits itself when I get back. But then I sort of sat there and thought, well, there's something in this. But they're know? not connected to this. No, no, they've got nothing to do with it. But they, they just think if it gets out that it's Dave Bonaguidi and he's got an ad agency, Charles Sarch is going to come after you. I just thought, you know what, I couldn't give a fuck anymore anyway. But I thought there's something really interesting. I spend all that time, all that money working on clients who are trying desperate to get page to seven pay, of the sun. To pay money to get into page seven of the sun. And you can do something and it just does it. And then I, that was a sort of turning point for me where I thought, wow. So I had a relationship with Dario. I've got a show coming up with him next week. So it was still really tight. I really yeah. love working with him. But then I went to a couple of other galleries and I said, right, show me the top five selling artists you've got. And they showed it to me and I went, well, I'm not as good as him and I'm not as good as her, but I'm better than him and I'm better than her and I'm better than him. So out of the top five, top 10. You're coming in third. I think I'm third or fourth. Yeah. Which is all right. right? I still haven't done any work. <laughs> Model of Charles Saatchi. But I knew what I was doing. I knew what I could do. And then once you get that sort of confidence of like, okay, well, then I know that I can fit in there. And art is so dry. Everyone's so sort of, mmm, mmm, so chin rub. And I just thought, well, maybe you can just have a bit of fun with it. And then I think things like, you know, language and personality and colour, obviously colour driven by punk, yeah. language driven by advertising, you know, propaganda, four words. I love doing that thing at that discipline, but then I also like doing stuff that, doesn't make sense. So all these things in the window that just say shoes, cock, sherry, or yoga, fags, curry, they don't mean anything. But every time someone walks past, it connects with them because they go, that's me. This is your what three words parodies, not parodies. Well, it was I, the most fun I've ever had because it was, a, it. it was an interactive show where you get your picture taken and then you pull the fruit machine and the words come out. But the thing I loved, which is something that we were taught in advertising, is when you engage the viewer or the consumer and they use their brain, it's a little bit like the sexist thing is like the dance of the seven veils. 
you know, it's so much more erotic. When you know what's underneath it, but you can't see it. And your brain sits there and adds it all up yeah. and conjures up that image. You're involved in it. It's an emotional involvement. And I just think advertising doesn't have that anymore because it just tells you what you want to do. Here's a checklist of 50 things we need in there. And if you put 49 of them in, you've not done good enough. And art, you get artists who go, I just like doing landscapes of Norfolk. And if you don't like landscapes of Norfolk... You're not buying. And so I don't mind being a bit of a commercial whore. That's my job. It's my job. It's not like I think you're really good at taking the feeling of the moment, the zeitgeist, if you want it, and making it jar with people's comfort. And I think that is so, so needed right well, that was now. something, as, again, in advertising, you know, I love doing those ads when something would happen. Remember when, like, the Evening Standard, you'd have two windows. You'd have the early day edition yeah. and then the evening edition. So if something happened at 9 o'clock in the morning or overnight, you could do an ad get it in the evening standard or something happened at lunchtime you could get it you in could the, respond the five real o'clocker. fast yeah and the clients love that and i love doing that and so i remember when the pandemic happened you know when i got to 2020 and i was like yeah i'm gonna be an artist it's gonna be amazing and then you know february got the virus and i remember just before i got the virus i'd done something where a couple of really horrible things had happened in the papers there was a little sort of dwarf child in australia that had been bullied by all these other kids and I remember seeing this footage of him crying and it was just, I found it harrowing again as a dad with kids. And so I did these prints that just said, just be nice. But I said, I don't want any money for it. So I went down to Jealous, I dropped 50 of them down there and I said, people have got to come in and bring a savoury snack or a bottle of drink and then you get one. And I, I said, I had no idea what was going to happen. I posted it on my Instagram, came back, called them up in the afternoon and they said, if they've all gone and we've just got a mountain of crisps <laughs> and, and bottles of beer. So I did another one with another gallery and I said, you've got to take a picture of you kissing a dog and then you get one of the prints. And it was just really good fun to fuck with it because I was just like, you know what? I don't want to make any money out of this. This is just fun. And then when the pandemic happened, when the first lockdown happened, I got it. When I came out, it was like streets were derelict. So I used to walk from my place, which is on Shackawell Lane, up to Print Club, which was like 100 meters away. I was really ill, really weak. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do. All the galleries are closed down. Can't buy ink. Can't get paper. I'm fucked. All this bloody magic of this new vision for my life is completely out the toilet. People are hoarding bog paper and fighting over food. How is art going to be important? And so I did these prints. So I just said, again, I don't want to make any money out of it. But if you send me a stamped address envelope, I did these uh, keep your chin up prints. Yeah. And that was driven by years earlier. I remember playing in a cricket match and slipping in the wet grass and breaking my ankle snapped there my foot was flopping all over the place and i remember as i'm lying on the floor going fucking out my leg this old bloke with a flat cap and a dog just walked past and went oh looks like a break that and i went yeah yeah i think so i think it is because i was doing that and the foot was all over the place and he went keep your chin up mate and i just thought it's such a london thing keep your chin up fuck off mate it's so my under, legs it's so underpowered it's, it's, it's just the way it was just like keep your chin up mate and he just walked off so i did that as a print but you would get a free one if you sent me a stamped address envelope and I folded it up on newsprint because that was the only paper I could get. And I printed a thousand of them. I'd come home every night and there'd be a fucking mountain of letters. And then half of them hadn't been paid enough stamps, so I'd have to go and buy stuff. It was just did my head in. I did a thousand of those. And then, of course, then the second one happened. I did keep your chin up again. And then I did, oh, there was another one which was, gives a hug. And it was like when you were allowed to touch and then they yeah. stopped doing that. And then it was like, the end is nigh. Let's fucking hope so. And it, all of those were just giveaways. So I'll just do them and see what happens. And I just love the fact that you can do stuff that taps into what people are feeling. Look, just to bring this to a close, it's, I could talk to you all day. You thrive on chaos. I'm getting too old for that shit. And you thrive on kindness. That runs through you like... And you could ask my ex-wife about that and she would say that's completely wrong. Well, I'm certain she would and that's okay. <laughs> We're all allowed to have different parts of us. And you started off talking about sometimes the people that are dealing the cards deal you a year's worth of shit ones. Just to see how you're going to respond, really. And I think it's part of the challenge for everybody is, you know, I like that thing of feeling slightly um, out of control. You know, the last five years of my life, I made that decision when I was 50 to stop doing things I hated doing. I was in a horrible marriage, working with some horrible people, doing a horrible job. And I was like, wow, I'm probably one of the 1% most fortunate people on earth where I've got a pretty good job. 
I can choose what I eat, where I live, who I hang around with, what I drive, what I do. I've got all those choices that 99% of the rest of the planet doesn't have, and I'm still miserable. And the most shameful thing is they were all decisions that I'd made. I had a chance to say, no, no, I'm not going to so marry you. Those cars. I'm not going to work with you two fucks. No way. But I said, oh, yeah, come in and I'll give you all my equity as well. How about that? And so um, I felt really ashamed about that. And when I suddenly went, you know what, I've got no space for any of that anymore. From now on, I'm going to be really selfish. I'm only going to do things that make me feel good. And the first thing I'm going to do is cut out things that make me feel bad. And it's like having a, a kind of an all-body, all-physicality audit where you just go, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop doing drugs, whatever. I mean, I never did any of that stuff. But it was like all the other things that I was doing, it was really unpleasantly painful. And so doing that, for the last five years, it's felt like walking through a slow-motion explosion where no anchor, been living in rentals for six months at a time, and then you finally managed to get a place and, you know, changing jobs that were pretty good, I have to say. They were all good jobs. But it's just the chaos. I want it to sort of be organized chaos rather than just chaotic chaos, yeah. which is not good for anybody. But now it sort of feels organized because, you know, I've got myself back. You know, I know what I've got to do. So I've got all the discipline that I had when I was in the corporate environment where, you know, turn up on time. When you say you're going to get it done by Thursday, get it done by Tuesday. You know, it's just called discipline. Yeah. And so it's just all of that stuff that you just apply to your own business. And, but it's all on my Todd, which is nice. It's good. It's amazing. Your parents still alive? Yeah. What do they think? My mum's an artist who lives in France. My dad is obviously retired and, you know, ex-restaurateur. I think they're just, you know, again, immigrants are always incredibly proud of anything that you do because you're the first proper kind of roots in a new place. Do you feel rooted in England? Do you feel rooted in I London? I'd feel rooted in Hackney, oddly enough. I mean, I'm, you know, Danish, Italian, English. I don't feel any of those things. When it comes to football, I support Italy. I don't feel Danish. I don't feel Italian. You know, I speak it, but very badly. I don't feel English because when I was a kid growing up, I was the foreign one. I wasn't the English kid. Everyone else is English, and I was the 2% of foreign kids. And so you feel detached from everything. But oddly enough, I feel very connected to Hackney. And I think a lot of it is when I lived in Spitalfields, it was the same. It was because it's in a high immigrant culture. Because it's everywhere and nowhere. Yeah, and it's a kind of a sort of messy place and you walk down Kingsland High Road and you blend in because it's not all white, it's not all black, it's like fucking minestrone soup. Everybody's down there and it's a million languages and then you walk down Ridley Road and then you walk down Church Street and, you know, they're separated by half a mile but it's like different ends of the world and I really like that and I also like the fact that I kind of exist in the middle of it and I love working with cafes around the corner and I do all their menus or I do signs for people and I, and I, I just love that not precious. It's a bit of a pain in the ass when you're sitting there, you know, and the bloke from the cafe comes around and goes, I need them done by tonight and it's really important. Menu's changing. And I, Come on. Um, yeah, well, that's exactly, I've just been doing that. And I don't get paid. I get tea. I've still got to pay for lunch. But you but get, get free cups of tea. Free. Teas? What else? Like £1.50 a day? They don't know what you're worth, do they? No, but he's probably got a grand's worth of my work on the wall. It's not chaos that you thrive on. It's disorder and they're disorder. very different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Very different things. Yeah, because that's what I mean about organized chaos it's like when you know what's happening within the chaos it's really really exciting because you know it's like when you hear stories about soldiers who are in these kind of mad situations and they just say everything slows down that's what yeah. it feels like to me is that when it's all going off you can just go look stop and let that thing fly past you and then just move through and it's like that i, love I fucking love it dave i'm really glad that your sister found you yeah so am i and i'm really yeah, glad that I your mum insisted that they had never crack at keeping you alive or yeah, yeah. making you alive yeah, yeah. Your work's fucking amazing. Thank you. Thank you and very much. And you're a really lovely man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.